All right, good morning. My name is Stephen. I'm very blessed to be the pastor. Will you turn your Bible with me, please, to the book of Luke? We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. It's a blessing to be together today. Vince, you're awesome. You look great. Everybody looks amazing. Thank you, everyone, for working so hard. I will say I walked in this morning at... Um, a little after nine to get ready for all the music stuff and everything, and it smelled amazing already. And I'm not blessed to have to compete with that right now. Just letting you know that. So I get it, I know where your mind is, it's fine. It's okay, it's gonna be all right. We got it, and we got it. But we serve a great king, don't we? Um, this morning we're gonna be looking, continuing on in Luke. We've been looking at the book of Luke since before Christmas. And so the classic Christmas verses of Luke of the, uh, about the birth of Jesus that was made famous by the Bible, of course. First is the original, and then by the Peanuts gang and Charlie Brown. Uh, secondarily, they would uh, say the Luke 2 passage about Jesus being born, and that's become famous over the radio and things like that, of course. And leading up to that, we have been looking at the book of Luke prior to Christmas. And following that, we've been continuing in Luke as we're looking at Jesus and what he's doing and getting to know him, that we can love him more. And so we are now in Luke chapter 4, and we're going to be looking together at what happens with Jesus following his temptations. Last week we talked about the temptation of Jesus. He gets baptized. He goes out into the wilderness. By The Holy Spirit tells him to go in the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. He overcomes all the temptation. Then he comes back and he starts proclaiming to the people about the kingdom of God. And as he's doing so, he's talking to them, and he's back in his hometown. We're going to read together in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14 about where Jesus is and what he's doing. So let's read together. Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 15, it says this. And Jesus returned in power, in the power of the Spirit, to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout the surrounding country. And he taught in all their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, that is, where he grew up as a child. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here also in your hometown as well. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up these three years and six months. And a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of these, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian." When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. 
And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Praise the Lord for his word. This scene unfolds. Could you imagine? This is the first time that Jesus starts really talking about himself. Especially in the book of Luke, what we've seen so far is Jesus gets baptized and a dove descends from heaven and rests on him. It's the Holy Spirit coming to rest on him. It's demonstrating to the people that he's a prophet, demonstrating to the people that he's sent by God and he's important. And then a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son. You should listen to him. That's miraculous. Not only is he a prophet, but God's son that we should listen to him. And now he's in the church meeting, if you will, in the synagogue. And he's in his hometown. And it says, as was his custom, he seems to have gone there a lot. So every church day, he didn't miss a day of church, he went. And it seems like he often does things because everybody's ready, basically, to hear from him. And they hand him a scroll. It happens to be the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet. And he starts reading it. And everybody's like, yeah, this is normal. This is good. And this is the first time now that he is going to say something about himself. And he talks about what Isaiah the prophet has said of this coming conqueror, this coming king, this coming deliverance that is on its way. All the people are expecting it. And he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Could you imagine? If you could go back to any time in history, what a time to sit in that church meeting and to hear Jesus say this about himself and sit down. Isn't it funny that he sits down? And all the ears of everyone are just still tuned to him. And he says, this scripture has been fulfilled today. How incredible. The people marvel at this. They love it. They love it because this is great news to them. This is news that has been from the very beginning. In the very beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he created man, he put them in the garden, and it was good. Creation was good. Things were good. He gave man and women everything they needed to live. And he gave them one prohibition. He said, don't eat from this one tree. If you eat of it, if you sin against me, if you disobey or rebel, or if you're a traitor to my law, then you will surely die. And the one law is, don't eat from this tree. And you know the story. They're tempted by, by Satan and who comes as a serpent to them. They fall into this temptation. They see that the fruit looks good to eat. The temptation comes that maybe God's holding you back. Maybe if you eat this fruit, you'll actually get power from it. And they take the fruit and they eat it together. And together they sin and they fall together. And because they are God's governors of the world, because he made them in his own image, creation falls with them. Humanity falls with them. They're separated from God. They're separated from each other. They're separated from themselves. Everything gets messy and broken and a mess. And then God comes down and he gives judgment because he said, if you eat from this tree, you're going to die. And talking to them together, he tells them he's going to do something about it. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he tells the woman that she is going to have a son. And that son is going to come, and he is going to crush that serpent's head. He's going to take all that poison out of people. He's going to deliver them from this problem of evil, this problem of sin that has separated them from God and each other. And from the very beginning of the Bible, there comes an expectation that God has a champion, a king, a warrior, a great one coming, a son who's coming who's going to deliver the people and bring them back into greatness with God. 
And so through the whole Bible, they're waiting for this. And the prophets have even come and told about what this guy is going to be like, what this son is going to be like. And Isaiah has talked all about it, and so has, so has Jeremiah, and so has Ezekiel, and so has Daniel, and all these people that are telling about what this great king, this warrior is going to be. They know that he's going to have a kingdom like no other. They know that when he comes, he's going to bring peace. They know that when he shows up, everything sort of becomes right and all the broken parts fall back into place because he's the great restorer. He's the one who binds up the broken hearts. He's the one who brings people out of impoverished situations. He's the one that takes away oppression. His kingdom is perfect justice. It's perfect righteousness. Doesn't that sound great? That especially sounds great if you're living in a little town called Nazareth. And most of the people are simple laborers and workers. And most of the goods they make as laborers and workers are sold at poor prices because they're second-class citizens. They're sold at poor prices because they are not the people that are most valued in the society. They're sold at poor prices because at the end of the day, even if they're great craftsmen, they're not Romans and they don't actually hold the titles that the important people hold. Because in this time period, as Jesus is talking to the people in church with them, the reality is that they are under the boot of another empire. Not only are they under the boot of that empire, but they are literally conscripted into service so that if a soldier beats you up, you have no recourse. If a soldier tells you to carry their bags and all their equipment, you have no recourse. You do what they say. If a soldier brings charges against you, you're a dead person. If a soldier takes your child and beats your child and makes your child carry stuff for them, you have no court to go to that will listen to you. And now Jesus says, I am here to bring the oppression to an end. And the people hear his gracious words and they rejoice. And they look at each other and they say, don't we know this guy? It's, it's Joseph's son. He's, he's a carpenter like Joseph is. How is he going to do this? This is amazing. Wow, his words are so gracious. They're so good. And he's become something of a celebrity. He's sort of famous in the whole region. Everybody knows about him. But then Jesus opens his mouth and says something else. And Jesus starts to remind them of their history. You see, Jesus has come to do great things. Will you turn in your Bible with me, please? to Isaiah chapter 61. He's come to do great things, but he's also telling them the truth about who he is and what he's going to do. The prophet Isaiah is prophesying to the people in Judea, in Judah. And he's telling them one main message. And that one main message is that they need to return with all their heart to God because he is their source and their life. And if they wander away from God, they will wander into judgment. Doesn't that sound kind of like the same thing that was happening in the garden? I've given you everything you need, but don't eat from this tree. And it's funny, especially since the fall, that man's proclivity now is to come back to that tree all the time. And I'm saying that metaphorically. That people like David told us today, fashion gods in their own image. They try to worship things wrongly. They go after success and they go after... Uh, celebrity instead of going after God. 
And so Isaiah is telling the people, please, there's judgment coming if you don't return back to righteousness. And that righteousness is not just pretense. It's not just saying things that are good. It's not pretending to help people. It's actually embracing from the heart that you are a representative of God and you live his way. And you demonstrate that through justice and righteousness. One major complaint that God has against the people in Isaiah 58, just a couple chapters before what we're about to read that Jesus read in Isaiah 61, is that the people are coming to church, dressing their finest. They look great. And as they come to church wearing all their finest clothes and pretending to have these great open hearts, they're also withholding all the laborers' wages. And they're stealing from their own workers in their shops. And yet they're coming to church and saying, Lord, Lord, you're so great. I love you so much. But in reality, the way they're living does not reflect at all what God's kingdom looks like or his righteousness. And instead looks like selfishness. And so Isaiah 61, the prophet is speaking to the people. And here's what he says. Isaiah 61, verse 1. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty for the captives and the opening of prison for those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, and they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. Praise the Lord. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Now, especially if you know your heritage, living in this place, and knowing that your great-great-great-great-grandparents didn't turn back to God. And instead, invading armies came in, destroyed all of the things around you, destroyed your livelihood, destroyed your cities, destroyed the places of worship, destroyed all of your fields, all of the crops. And now, an invading army still stands, the Romans. To hear Jesus quote this passage and say, now it is fulfilled in your hearing. The joy that would come. It's amazing. But Jesus reminds them of the other parts. You see, he didn't just come to bind up the brokenhearted. He didn't just come to give good news to the poor. He didn't just come to give liberty to the oppressed and the captives. He came to give sight to the blind. And the problem in Isaiah's day is that the people have become blinded by their own selfishness and they have not turned back to see what God is actually doing or hear what he has said. And so Jesus reminds them of this. He tells them two stories. He says, first of all, prophet's not welcome in his hometown, which is a problem because he's speaking in his hometown. That's kind of weird, right? So he says, prophets are not welcome. Then he goes on to talk about Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah and Elisha were two guys who had come to this very region decades before to speak to this same people, these same families, to tell them to turn back to what God had done. And ultimately, the people reject them. Elijah has a showdown 
with these other prophets who are, who are speaking out against God and instead raising up idols all over the country. And in doing that, he gets great victory for God. The Lord demonstrates his own power. And the result of that is that the king and queen of Israel, the ones who are in charge, put a price on his head and a bounty to kill him. And he flees away and goes to caves to hide for his own life. The people, even seeing God's great power, do not respond because their eyes have become blinded by their own selfishness. Elisha eventually also takes over from Elijah, and he goes on to say the same message, which is turn your hearts back to God. Follow the covenant. Follow what God told us to do. Follow the law. Be a people of righteousness and justice. And instead, the people are so blinded still by their eyes being turned to selfishness that they do not turn back. And what happens then is because the people have not received the word of God, the Lord starts to send the prophets to people outside of the families. And Jesus gives us two examples. The first one, he says, is the widow. In this case, the widow has gone through horrible things happening. She's in Sidon, which is north of where they live. And this widow has had her husband killed, and she's in jeopardy of losing her house and all that she has. And so the prophet tells her, go back, fill up some oil. And she takes her oil that she can sell or use in her home and fills up a jar, and it just never runs out until she fills all these jars and she has this plentiful surplus of oil. It's amazing what God does. But the key here is that God has caused a miracle to come that's blessing not the people that you would expect. But instead, those people who actually are allied with the enemies of God's people. You see, she lives in Syria. She lives near Lebanon. That doesn't make sense. And so God blesses her and cares for her through the prophet, which is just showing us even more how the people of God have turned their eyes away from what God is doing and instead turning to their own hearts. In the same way, Elisha now, the prophet, he has a Syrian diplomat come to him. Now, not a widow on the brink of destruction, not somebody who has no economic future, but a guy who's the general of all the great armies of Syria, who commands all the greatest weapons of Syria. And he comes to the prophet to try to buy healing because he has a problem in his body. And he comes, and God sees fit to heal him through the prophet, but not the own countrymen. How strange. Now Jesus is basically saying this. He's saying, I know that everybody in this room are Cardinals fans. I know that everybody in this church is loyal to the Cardinals, maybe the Blues, and no other teams. Maybe Kansas City sometimes. And your loyalty is good. And I'm telling you, there are good things happening. And this great captain, this great coach is going to come who will give all the teams great success. And everybody in the room is like, oh, man. This is great. Stanley Cup, it's in the bag. This is great. World Series, we are going to win. I don't know what the new soccer, what is the soccer thing? St. Louis City, they're, that team, they're going to win whatever the cool cup is. I don't even know what that is yet. Anyway, they're going to win. St. Louis is going to be great. And then it's as if Jesus is saying, but beware because you remember what's happened in the past. And actually, the great coach is going to let the Cubs win. 
What? Blackhawks Stanley Cup. What? Don't you remember how he is? And the people, suddenly, their voices change. They say, wow, this is so gracious. Everything he's saying is amazing. Oh, Jesus, the celebrity from our own hometown, how cool he is. This is so nice, everything he's talking about. Oh, no more oppression. We'll get rid of these Romans. This is going to be so great. And then he reminds them, the selfishness that's in you caused your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, to fall away until God started giving blessings to other people. You see, he came to restore sight, not just to take away oppression. And he's opening their eyes to see their own selfishness. And in that moment, when he starts to talk about real things, they change their tune really quick, don't they? What does it say? Suddenly their voices were filled with, do you remember what it said? Wrath. Wrath against him. And the whole church congregation rises up together to push him to the edge of a cliff so they can kill him on the spot. What? What's happening here? You know the, the prophets' lives that Jesus talks about were constantly in danger. In fact, most of the prophets were murdered by God's own people. When they stood up and said, turn back, turn away from this junk, they were murdered. You know, Jesus himself is going to flee from this crowd. Isn't it amazing what happens? At the end, it just says he walked through, basically. How does that happen? I, it's a miracle. Everybody's ready to kill him. He kind of just leaves. And it gives us no details of what happened there. I want to know, like, did he fly? Like, I don't know. Well, something happened, though, and he just like, okay, I'm out. Left. But a time will come, understand, when the same people, God's people, people who love Jesus, supposedly, are going to betray him to death. You know, Judas is an interesting guy. We all know about Judas, right? Judas is one of the 12 disciples. He's following Jesus. You know, he followed Jesus for three years. He lives with Jesus. He lives with the disciples. They know each other. They're best friends. And Judas is so faithful in the eyes of all the people that he becomes the treasurer of their band. Now, you don't give the treasurer position to the guy that's bad with money. You give it to the guy you trust the most. You give it to the guy who's the smartest. And that's Judas. In, at the communion meal, when Jesus institutes the communion meal before the Passover, before he goes to the cross, he's at the table reclining, and he says, one of you is going to betray me. And all the disciples look at each other and go, is it, is it you? No, it's not me. I don't, I don't think it's me. Who? Is it you? No. And then Jesus says, the one in whom I take this bread and I dip it and I give it to you, you're the one who will betray me. And he walks to Judas and he hands him the bread. And he says, do what you're going to do quickly. It says at that moment, Satan took him over. And he runs away to go betray the Savior. Now here's the crazy part. Everybody else at the table he just said, one of you will betray me. They all question, is it me? Is it you? No. He says, the one I hand this to, that's the one. He hands it to Judas. Judas walks out the door. You know what the disciples say? Oh, Judas, he's going to get bread for the poor. Amazing. This guy is so great. He's going, he's going to go help the poor while we're at the meal with Jesus. Man, Judas is the best, isn't he? Judas is the best. 
They don't even get it. His reputation is so great. They don't understand what's happening. And then Judas runs away. He sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He comes into the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is waiting, bringing with him soldiers and everyone else to arrest Jesus. And he walks up to the Christ and betrays him by kissing him on the cheek. And Jesus looks at him, knowing what he's going to do, and says, really, with, with a kiss, Judas? With a kiss? And still, even then, the other disciples don't fully get what's going on. And Jesus is talking in this passage, in Luke chapter 4, to a people who are so blinded by their own selfishness and sin for generations that they cannot see the Savior who's sitting before them. And when they are confronted with that selfishness, their first response is not, oh, Lord, forgive me. Their first response is, we got to kill this guy. And as one people, the whole church body, you know how hard it is to get a whole church body to do anything together? <laughs> Come on now. They stand up together. We're going to murder this guy. You're going to murder somebody? I mean, come on. That's crazy. And if they try to murder him, just one person, that one person, the Romans will execute because the Romans are the only ones who have capital punishment. But if a mob does it, it's hard to know who did it. And so they're even being smart to kill him in a way that's not going to get the other people killed. Because remember, they're oppressed. What is that? It's the same heart as Judas. And here's the problem, every one of us. The Bible tells us we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all had this poison that's entered our body, that's entered our mind, that's entered our hearts. It's selfishness, it's sin, it's rebellion against God. And Jesus has come to take away the oppression from the oppressed. He's come to free the captives, and we are captives to sin. And he's also come to bring sight to the blind. And I'm telling you right now that a lot of times, when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes forth, that he is the only way to salvation, that he is the bread of life, he is the way, the truth, the life, that Jesus Christ went to the cross, betrayed by his own people, that he died on our behalf, that he took all the wrath of sin upon himself. When he did that, if you believe in him, he cleansed you from sin because he became, the Bible says, sin on our behalf. He became the object of everything that God hates. He became the object of that rebellion that's in our hearts. But then he rose to life. He defeated sin. He defeated death. And now the victor, the champion, the king that we've been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3 is revealed to the world. It's Jesus. He's the king. He really is the way. He really is the truth. He really is the life. He's everything. He's our forgiveness. And yet... The selfishness of sin clouds our eyes. And sometimes when you tell people about Jesus, the first response they have is not, oh, forgive me, Lord. The first response they have is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Because to talk about Jesus means you've got to question family lines. You've got to question heritage. You've got to question history. You've got to question your own heart. And people do not like to do that. And so what's happened to the gospel is it's become watered down through TikTok. It's become watered down into this thing that's just, Jesus is nice. 
And if you think Jesus is nice, you should be nice too. Think kind, be kind, great kind, kind. That's it. But that's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so dividing. It's so dividing that whole people came together to murder Jesus. Is your gospel true to that message? Or have you allowed some of the selfishness of your heart to still blind your eyes? To say, well, you know, Jesus is okay. He's kind of cool. Follow him sometimes. You know, I can come to church in my nice clothes and I can look great and I can do all this stuff. And then I can go on Monday morning and rob the workers of their pay. I can go on Monday morning and spread the lies I need to spread to get ahead at work. I can go on Monday morning and bash people behind their back because that's how you make friends. You make friends by finding the weak and mocking them. Then those guys think you're funny and that's how you make friends. So too bad for that guy. You know, that's how our culture works. But Jesus is countercultural. Jesus is not the same way. He takes the selfishness of our heart. He breaks that apart. And he brings instead the light of the gospel, which is self-sacrificial and love shown by, by his own death and resurrection. And he tells us that we have to be people who are true to themselves, who look at our own hearts with eyes that are not blinded. And if we look at our own heart and you see selfishness there, the command of the scripture is that you come to Jesus and say, Lord, I cannot fix this heart problem by myself. I cannot take it away. I cannot take the, the junk that's there and my blindness and make it right myself. And I need you to cleanse it. Forgive me, Lord. And do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that his death and resurrection was so powerful and his forgiveness so complete that he takes that junk from our heart, completely eradicates it by his death and resurrection, and instead gives us a new heart that we are his and filled with his spirit and now we represent him and suddenly new things come out of us and instead of lies that immediately come from our mouth, now praise immediately comes. Now kindness really does come because we treat people like image bearers instead of like things to use. We are changed by Christ. And this is what it looks like to not have oppression in our lives anymore. To not be under the thumb, not of Rome or a country, but not be under the thumb of sin anymore. That drives us to these things. But if we don't confront it, if we don't talk about it, if we deny sin, we deny the gospel. And Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, is demonstrating to the people that they have to look into their own heart and be real about it and not just gloss it over. The question for you today is, do you know him and do you have a new heart? The great news of the gospel is that Jesus says that he takes our sins and we fail. He takes our failures. When we ask him for forgiveness, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, he separates it away from us. That you are no longer sinful, wrath of God. Your heart is corrupt in all things. You're going to die in his wrath for everything. But now, the Bible says, because he took the punishment for us, you have become the righteousness of God. Now, that's not to say we never fail. We are real people still going through sanctification to look more like Christ. But when we fail, he's faithful and just that if we ask him for forgiveness, he really does cleanse us from sin. And that is good news. That is good news. Now, I was talking to somebody once. I had a friend who was a functional alcoholic. I say functional because he could drive cars, he could go to work, he could do all kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, he was always drunk. 
always drunk, and most people couldn't tell. Um, he knew, he had buddies who would send him messages on where police checkpoints were so he could, he could avoid them because he was driving drunk all the time. And one day I asked him, I said, um, I said, how's this going for you? And he said, well, I woke, up, uh, I woke up in New Orleans naked in a hotel room. I don't know where I was or what happened. I can't remember anything. And I'm pretty sure I'm not okay. And I was like, you want to keep living this way? He said, this is all I got. Sometimes sin blinds us so much. The addiction of the junk is not life. It's not life. But Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, he shines the light even into our own hearts to show us what the truth is. And the reaction of the world, of our neighbors or our friends, oftentimes is not, this is so great. Oftentimes, they will reject us. They will hate the message because they hate the Savior. But the truth and the greatness of God is that his grace is irresistible. Once his light shines in your life, all of that junk just, it gets evaporated away because he's so good. Do you know him like that? Or are you still trying to make yourself right for him? Do you know his grace, his forgiveness, his truth? Because he really has taken away the oppression from your life. He really has saved you from being a captive. And he has also given sight to you, us who were blind. He's a good king, isn't he? What do we do today? If you, are, if you don't know Jesus, if this is the first time anybody has ever talked to you like this, I'm telling you, if you don't know him and you're trying to live your life in your own strength, you will fail and you're under the wrath of God. If you have ears to hear it, throw yourself on the ground and say, Lord, forgive me. And I'm telling you, he will forgive you. And you will feel your heart beat for the first time in your whole life. If you're new, you just met Jesus recently, then I'm telling you, open your eyes to your heart and say, Lord, cleanse me. And I'm telling you, you won't like what you see there sometimes, but he's faithful and just. He will cleanse us of all unrighteousness as we serve him. If you are a veteran Christian, mature, then don't let the message of the world water down the gospel in your own life. If you're going to tell people the gospel, you also have to tell them about sin. And the proclivity for us today is to avoid that because we don't want to hurt any feelings. But I'm telling you, no people will come into the kingdom without also knowing that Jesus Christ has saved them from the oppression of sin and not just making them happy. Amen? So let's be clear about the gospel. Let's tell people about the, about the gospel. Let's bring people to Jesus and say, you need a savior just like me. And he's good. And he brings all the oppression away and makes us new creations in himself. Amen to that? Amen. Let's pray. Can you stand? I'm going to pray for you. Thank you, Lord. Father, you are good. Thank you that you sent Jesus. Lord, thank you that you haven't left us in blindness. You haven't left us in selfishness. You haven't left us in addiction. You haven't left us alone to just rot. But Lord, you sent your son to open the eyes of the blind Lord, to free the captives. Lord, to proclaim liberty to the oppressed. And so, Lord, in that liberty, we open our mouths to say we love you, Jesus. 
We thank you, Jesus. You are a good king. Lord, help us to herald your word, to represent you well, to speak your whole gospel. Help us, Lord, to honor you at every turn. Lord, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, if there's any selfishness in our heart, any junk there that is festering, Father, cleanse us, I pray. Through your son, Jesus, who died for us. Lord, wash us clean. We confess our sins to you. And Lord, we thank you that you are good, that you are true, and that you have all life in you. And so, Lord, I pray for a blessing on all my brothers and sisters here today, that they would know your peace, your joy, your life, that they would know you, O oh God, who is our source. May you know the call of the Father. May you know the great rule of the Son. And may you know the power of the Holy Spirit as he leads us to Christ and shapes your life to look more like him. God bless you. Amen. Amen.